This is a crowd podcast. This is KPBS Midday Edition Roundtable. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. The trial of the Marine squad leader accused in the killings of 24 Iraqis in the town of Haditha got underway at Camp Pendleton this week. Tony Perry, you are covering this trial at Camp Pendleton. It's getting national attention. What's the atmosphere in the courtroom? It's very tense, and it's there. the stakes are large, and you can, you can tell it in the courtroom. Finally, we are at the end of our journey. The court-martial of Staff Sergeant Frank D. Wooderich. All rise. The court has called the order. All parties present when the court recessed on Friday afternoon are once again present. Everyone, please be seated. When I first started filming... I thought I was going to tell the story of someone who had been accused of mass murder and maybe offer a window into the military justice system. I honestly thought it was going to be a pretty straightforward project and that I'd be done in a year, year and a half, tops. But then the evidence started to pile up and every Marine involved in this case, except Frank Wooderich, was granted immunity or had their charges dismissed. And I fell deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole. I came to realize I wasn't telling Frank's story. In fact, Frank almost became an incidental character, a bystander in his own drama. The real story, I thought, was about the corruption or the malfeasance or maybe just the incompetence at the heart of a prosecution that would say or do anything so long as they could get a conviction. But then came Frank's trial, specifically the way it ended, and I was forced to confront the fact that I had been wrong all along, that I had no idea what was really going on. Within one hour of the IED attack on his convoy on 19 November 2005, the accused killed five people at the roadside and eight people in a home that we'll call My name is Michael Epstein, and you're listening to my podcast about the longest, most expensive criminal investigation in U.S. military history. Murder in House 2. Episode 10. Just Kills. Frank Wooderich's court-martial began 10 days after then-President Barack Obama withdrew the last American troops from Iraq. A crime that once threatened to define the war was instead its final act. Now, you've admitted to lying on a number of occasions, correct? Yes, sir. Some of those lies were sworn, correct? Yes, sir. There were no surprises at Frank's trial. No Perry Mason moments to play for you. Just a steady stream of government witnesses who contradicted not only the forensic evidence, but each other as well. How long were you within that room? Uh, I was not in that room any more than two or three seconds. That's Stephen Tatum's testimony. How long was Sergeant Woodard? Five, six seconds, maybe. When I opened the door, the first thing I see is women and kids. And this is Humberto Mendoza's. First of all, uh, did you physically enter into the room? Yes, sir. 
when you said you saw women, did you see first of all any adult women? Yes, sir. Where did you, how many adult women did you personally observe? Two adult women, sir. Okay. Now, did you see children? Yes, sir. Where were the children? Did you, did, were you able to observe where they were located? They were on top of the bed next to the adult women, sir. I wish I could tell you I was so jaded at this point that Mendoza's testimony didn't upset me. But I can't. What Mendoza said on the stand so obviously contradicted Tatum's testimony that I was appalled. Not so much by Mendoza, but by the realization that no one seemed to care. Not the press in the gallery, or the judge presiding over the trial, and certainly not the Marine Corps. Let me explain. Once Stephen Tatum had his charges dismissed and was granted immunity, I assumed the prosecution would throw Mendoza under the bus. In fact, I was convinced they had to. You see, Tatum and Mendoza contradict each other. And because of that, I couldn't see how both could end up being government witnesses. Mendoza said he told Tatum there were women and children in the back bedroom of House 2 before Tatum went in. Tatum said he only went into that room because Frank Wooderich was already firing his weapon in there. If you believe Mendoza, Stephen Tatum is guilty of murder. And if Stephen Tatum is your star witness against Frank Wooderich at Frank Wooderich's court-martial, you really can't put Mendoza on the stand. Because if you do, you've just impeached your star witness. But that's exactly what the government did. Now, will you testify that you closed the door? Yes, sir. What did you do after you closed the door? I turned around and started talking to Lance Corporal Taylor. What do you say to Lance Corporal Taylor? I told him that there were women and kids inside the room, sir. And did Lance Corporal Taylor say anything in response to that? Yes, sir. He says, well, should they? Okay. And what did you say in response to that? Why can't you believe both? Well, you can't believe both because Tatum can't have done both of those things. Neil Puckett. Tatum is the pivot there. I mean, you either believe things happen the way Tatum related, or you believe things the way Mendoza related. Which is to say Tatum either went in innocently thinking that there was a Marine shooting, or he went in knowing there were women and children. Yes. If you sponsor both of those sworn testimonies as a prosecutor, in my opinion, and I'm no ethics expert, but in my opinion, that is patently unethical. Suborning perjury? Well, yeah, it also commits the crime of suborning perjury, which which like anyone can do. Not You don't have to be a prosecutor to do that. And that violates the canons of ethics, of professional ethics for, for a lawyer. And that's how it went for three solid weeks. One witness after another giving testimony that either contradicted the forensic evidence or contradicted other government witnesses. It was, to be charitable, a confusing mess. And all of this was deeply upsetting to Frank. For years, really, since the story first broke, Frank wanted to take the stand in his own defense. That's why he went on 60 Minutes, to defend himself against the allegation he intentionally murdered 24 Iraqi civilians. Haytham and Colby thought this was a horrible idea. Actually, horrible isn't a strong enough word. Idiotic would be more accurate. But Neil thought Frank would make a good witness. He, 
believed in Frank. We need to have some kind of evidence to offer as to support our theory that shooters went back into house one and two. This debate about whether or not Frank should testify in his own defense went on for years. He's sitting right there. But, but wait, why are you? Yeah. Sure. Why are you so? Why are it's going to happen? Lose us the case. No, that will win us the case. That will win us the case. Why are you so? What, what practice will put him on the stand? I will crucify him and make him look like a mass murderer. No, you won't. Easy. No, you won't. I guarantee I no. can. Well, no. we need to go through the exercise. But why? I think that is a, the worst idea we could possibly. Well, that's why? the one we're going with. They're going to say that guy sure as fuck knew about it. Just like Hayden was doing this. I don't think there's any evidence of collusion. Frank, how can you not know there, there were women and children in there? I mean, you're, you're a few feet away. I mean, you, you said yourself said that you saw Mendoza coming out of that room. How can you not know what's going on in that room? You're going to tell us here that you don't know what happened that day? Frank, it should be said, never wavered. He wanted to take the stand. I can't say I thought it was a good idea. I mean, the guy couldn't remember what happened in a home where he was accused of murdering two women and five children. Not the most reliable witness. But I understood why Frank wanted to speak in his own defense. Year after year, Frank had been silent. Silent while the press and the government declared him a mass murderer. Silent while every other Marine in this case was either granted immunity or had their charges dismissed. I mean, who wouldn't want to stand up under those circumstances and declare their innocence? Still, that didn't make it a good idea. You're going to have a little nervousness and a little tenseness up there. Because, oh, I, I mean, will. The whole experience is, is just sit, just sitting in the witness seat is going to make me nervous. Yeah. One Saturday afternoon, right in the middle of Frank's court-martial, Neil and Haytham decided to see how Frank would do under a withering cross-examination. As I got back to the vehicle, I started hearing fire to the south, um, some type of small arms fire. Was that the first time you realized uh, you heard any fire? Yes. After the engagement and? Yes. Okay. What did you hear? Um, I just, I heard small arms fire, I heard, I don't remember hearing bursts. I remember hearing kind of just shots. Uh, no one asked you that. Oh, good point. <laughs> Why are you and, contradicting what people said? Did you hear small arms fire? Yes, I did. That's what he asked you. Right. Okay. That's it. Yep. I, I need to remember that. There is this long debate that Frank wanted to go on the stand. Did Frank, were you forcing Frank to go on the stand? No, no, no nobody, nobody forces uh, their client to, to go on the stand. Frank always wanted to speak for himself. He always wanted to say what he was thinking, what he was doing, and he wanted to be able to explain his actions. Did you see Marines follow it in with rifle fire? No, I, I don't. Um, I think it was going to happen, but we got alerted to someone who had escaped the house. Why did you hesitate so long? Um, I'm just trying to recall, I guess. Trying to trying to visually recall? Yeah, I mean, well, here's 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 where we are on this, Frank. I mean, we are at the no shit, you fuck up and you go to jail and you get to meet your grandkids 
at Fort Leavenworth during visiting hours, okay? I understand so that. So we, we, yeah. we gotta do this right. Yep. Okay, so did the room get cleared while you were in the building or did it not? I mean, that's, that's where I'm going with it. It did not get cleared at that time. Okay, so there should be no hesitation when I say, did you see Marines follow that grenade into that room? No. I didn't think Frank could take the stand because with good cross-examination, Frank was gonna, he's already, he'd already admitted that, that I said shoot first and ask questions later. Do you remember saying shoot first and ask questions later, those exact words? I do not. That's in your statement to Colonel Watt. Why are those words there? Shoot first and ask questions later? Yeah. Because that was um, kind of what I meant. I, I don't know. Remember way back in episode five when I laid out the government's case against Frank? Remember the statement Frank made at the beginning of the investigation? The one where he admitted to telling his Marines to shoot first and ask questions later. Well, to the prosecution, Frank's statement amounted to a confession. The defense always saw it in a more nuanced light, but they understood it posed a serious problem, especially if Frank was to take the stand. That's on words. And you said that the term, shoot first and ask questions later in the Watt statement, was not what you really said. Haytham. What did you tell Colonel Watt? When I, do you when remember I, it being in quotes? I do remember it being in quotes. That means it came out of your mouth and he put it in quotes. Would you agree with that? Correct. And that's true. It did come out of my mouth. So you did say it at that time? I did. Let me ask you this. Where in the FM 6-5 do you get to tell your squad, shoot first and ask questions later? That is not in there. I'm pretty sure it's not in there. Where in the ROE card, or on the ROE card, does it say, shoot first and ask questions later? It doesn't. Okay. Now, you want us to sit here and believe that what you really intended was that don't hesitate, right? Correct. Let's assume for a minute that the way Mendoza took those words is exactly as they sound. Shoot first and ask questions later. I know you want to interrupt me, but let me finish my question. It bothers you, doesn't it? Because you know where I'm going, huh? Let's assume Mendoza, the boot, the private, took those words exactly the way they sound. Shoot first, and then we'll ask questions later, right? Okay. And then assume for a minute that he did exactly that. Okay. He ignored the rules of engagement, and that he shot people knowing they were civilians because he believed that you can just shoot anybody you want. So assume for a minute that Mendoza took your words exactly as they sound and killed someone knowing they were civilians. You'd be responsible for that, wouldn't you? No. Why not? Mendoza is a adult human being in the Marine Corps who um, knows right from wrong. If he believes that you meant shoot first and ask questions later, it would make it easier for him to just ignore the fact that there are women and children in there and go on a shooting spree. I... Um, I guess someone could argue that, but I, I just, I don't, I don't. I am I, arguing that. I don't I'm asking I, you. Wouldn't I don't. it be easier to do that, to just ignore the ROEs when the squad leader says, shoot first and ask questions later? You can admit it, Staff Sergeant, because I know in your mind you want to say yes, but you're afraid to say yes because you're, you'd be in trouble in here. No, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm honestly just trying. I, I, don't, don't, I, know, know. I don't, I don't, I don't. You I don't, don't know so. how Mendoza took your words. Do you? No, I don't. You don't know how your words affected his state of mind, do you? 
No. You don't know what those words, along with the fear and excitement of combat, may have done to that Marine at that time, do you? No. And then add the loss of a close, of a member of the squad, and we have no idea how it affected his approach to this combat. You can't say it, can you? No, I can't. Would you agree with me that it was irresponsible to say those words, now that you think about it? If I said those words specifically? Well, you just told me you did. Make up your mind. Didn't you admit that to me I, just a few minutes I ago? I admitted that, that I told Colonel Watt that. Yes, and so if you admitted that you told Colonel Watt that, why would you admit to something that you didn't do? He didn't force you to say it, right? Yeah. I, memory was fresher back then, right? And I'm not saying that you meant for them to ignore the ROE staff sergeant. I'm just saying I understand what your state of mind was, but you don't know how he took it. Correct. We don't know how those words affect somebody else. Okay, I, I'll admit to that. I, I don't have any more questions for you. You're, you're guilty. Needless to say... Frank did not take the stand. For three weeks in a courtroom in Southern California, the United States Marine Corps presented their case against Staff Sergeant Frank Wooderich. The evidence will show that the accused never lost control of his fire team, never lost control of the squad, but made a series of fatal assumptions about the events on 19 November 2005. They told the jury that after the IED blast, Frank went on a murderous rampage, killing the five Iraqi men at roadside and the two women and five children in House 2. And that series of fatal assumptions will demonstrate to you beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused lost control of himself that day. I've often thought how would I have prosecuted this case? What if I was filming the prosecution instead of the defense? Could I have convicted Frank Wooderich? Thank you. The court will be recessed for 10 minutes. Actually, the case against Frank was a pretty easy and quite damning one to make. All the prosecution had to do was call one witness. Just one. Andrew Wright. Mr. Wright, would you stand up and face me, please? Please raise your right hand. You swear that the testimony you shall give in the case now and hearing to be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Have a seat, please. Mr. Wright, can you state your full name and spell your last name for the court report? Andrew Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. Once Andrew took the stand and the pictures he took were entered in as evidence, the government should have rested their case. That was it. That was all they had to do. Did you have an occasion on 19 November 2005 to go beyond the kitchen in house number two? In other words, did you go to any other rooms in house two? The only other rooms I went to was um, the rooms that had dead bodies in it. Okay, so you did go to a room besides the kitchen? Yes. Tell us about that. Um, I went to... Are you doing okay? Because imagine, at closing argument, turning to the jury with those pictures in hand and saying, as Americans, as Marines, is this who we are? Is this what we do, even in war? If you're okay with these images, let Frank Wooderich go free. But if you're not, you have to convict him. 
because Frank Wooderich was in charge that day. It doesn't matter if he was the primary shooter in House 2 or not. The Marines, under his command, committed this atrocity. Neil lived in fear of that argument. He knew he couldn't talk his way past it. No one could. Negligent dereliction of duty, disapproved confinement, disapproved PCD. But it didn't matter. Because just as Humberto Mendoza was finishing his testimony, the prosecution privately reached out to Neil and stunned everyone by offering Frank Wooderich a plea deal to make the case go away. Frank is crazy if he doesn't take, take it. it. Three months. We'll talk. And, and no, no, no confinement. Yeah. So no confinement and no BCD? Uh, disapproved confinement, disapproved BCD. He's going to check with the SJ right Are they going to add step him with an OTH? They can't. He's passed his EAS. So what's the deal? What's the, what's the... He pleads guilty to one speck of negligent dereliction of duty, and he gets uh, no confinement and no discharge, which means, he, which means the judge could reduce him in rank, and mm-hmm. the judge could take, some, could take some money from him. The judge who heard all the same and he, bullshit And he doesn't evidence. charge. And he doesn't go to jail. It doesn't... No jail, no discharge. That means he doesn't go to the brig, and he doesn't get a bad discharge. Got all that? I know. It's a lot of military jargon. But when you unpack it, it's really quite astonishing. Here's the deal. Frank pleads guilty to a single count of negligent dereliction of duty, a misdemeanor. And in return, all his other charges are dismissed. No jail time, no bad conduct discharge. I said, if you were to advocate to the command that it was in the best interest of the Marine Corps in the command, that Woodridge plead guilty to a single speck of negligent dereliction of duty, and the pretrial agreement included disapproving a BCD and disapproving confinement. He goes, don't tell me that unless you're serious. And I said, I, I am serious, Sean. When have, I, when have I ever been anything other than that? He goes, okay, well, I, I, need, to, I need to talk to the SGA. I need to get in contact with the SGA. He goes, I, I think I can sell this. This is Neil telling Haytham about the government's offer of a plea deal. He's in there two doors away now trying to sell it. Now, it may never get sold, but that's where his head is. You're right about something. He was blowing smoke up your ass when he said he'd support a negative dereliction before. He'd support it now because he's being embarrassed. No, no. If it does happen, they're fucked even more. Because here they, they put on this horrible evidence about what about him gunning down people and, and, and murdering children, and now they're going to let him plead guilty to negligent dereliction of duty, and the press gets a hold of uh, you know the maximum punishment is three months, but he's not going to do any jail time. He's not going to get a discharge. Are you kidding me? In retrospect, strike you as bizarre that he didn't even negotiate? Oh, no, no, there was no negotiation. Neil. He offered me a single count of the least serious charge in the entire Uniform Code of Military Justice. Honestly, the least serious charge that can be levied against somebody. That was his opening offer. You know, he didn't negotiate at all. Counsel, please rise. Thanks, my word, is my duty as military judge to inform you that this court-martial finds you guilty. Were you surprised that Frank got a plea deal? And when he got the plea deal? You were the next witness, weren't you? I was buttoning up my suit jacket and walking to the courtroom. Mike Maloney, who, as you surely must know by now, was the senior forensic investigator for the NCIS assigned to this case. At the time, I was very surprised. In hindsight, I'm not. 
the case would have fallen apart when we testified. When I testified and then Mr. Brady testified, it would have been obvious that Tatum and um, Mendoza both gave false testimony. There would have been no credibility given to either of theirs. And then at that point, the forensic reconstruction and Safa's statement and the rest comes in. And it would probably be clear to anyone sitting there that there was a good likelihood that Frank Wooderich was not the other shooter in that room, but in fact, Mendoza was. And that's reasonable doubt and that ends the case. And that also brings to question at that point, the competency of the attorneys, the system, the immunity and everything else. So in hindsight, I think for a lot of people, that case stopped at just the right time. Marine Corps lore has no room for a dishonor, for the killing of women and children. Hatham, someone at a much higher level, wanted to prosecute but didn't want convictions. Because a conviction of these Marines is a conviction of the Marine Corps. is a conviction of our tactics. Or even if it's not a conviction of our tactics in the Marine Corps, it's a very ugly chapter in the in Marine Corps history. And uh, the Army owns Milai, we don't. A U.S. Marine accused of leading a massacre of 24 Iraqi civilians has been spared jail by a military judge. More now on the conclusion to the biggest and longest-running criminal case against U.S. troops in the Iraq War. I have to believe that when I have a prosecutor who's seeking nine manslaughter convictions and ends up accepting this plea to this simple charge of dereliction of duty, that they must have believed that things did not go well for them in the first couple days of the trial. Are you glad to be going home? How, how do you react to the sort of the end of this story? The definition of a trial is a search for the truth. And Neil. There was no search. There was no search for the truth. To bury it and hide it and not tell the truth. We lose our humanity to do that. We don't understand how if crimes were committed in those bedrooms, how the only people who could have committed them were given immunity and their charges dismissed with prejudice. How does that happen? How, how can that possibly be justice for the people of Haditha? Over the years, I've been asked why I thought Frank's case and the whole Haditha investigation played out the way it did. Why was no one convicted? Why did the United States Marine Corps spend six years dragging Frank Wooderich's name through the muck and mud, labeling him a murderer of women and children only to let him go free? Really, why? The best answer I can come up with is this. The Marine Corps was forced to prosecute a case it could not afford to win. Think about it. The Marine Corps tried to cover up Haditha when it first occurred. Remember that initial press release that said 15 Iraqi civilians died as a result of an IED blast? Not a complete lie, but close. But Tim McGurk's reporting in Time magazine exposed that cover-up and created a media and political firestorm. The Marine Corps was forced to investigate, forced to admit civilians, women and children had been murdered by Marines in their own homes. That was a shock. It still is. We don't like to think of ourselves as murderers 
and Haditha seriously jeopardized what little public support was left for the war. No one, least of all the Bush administration, wanted another Milai. They couldn't afford it. So they charged the enlisted Marines with murder. The officers were charged with covering up the crime. Then, as the public's attention waned, the Marine Corps quietly dismissed Stephen Tatum, Justin Sherritt, and Sonic de la Cruz's charges and granted everyone else, including Umberto Mendoza, immunity. A new story emerged. The evidence exonerated everyone except Frank Wooderich. He alone was guilty for what happened in Haditha. But that wasn't true either. That was another lie. But it fed our need for someone, anyone, to be responsible for what happened in Haditha. How does the prosecution have the authority to do this over and over and over again? Isn't there anybody that acts as a check to a prosecution that may be corrupt? Unlike the civilian system, the prosecution does not have the authority to make those decisions. Neil. The only person who has the authority to do that is the commanding officer who carries the title of convening authority, and that means to convene the court-martial. So the convening authority is in ultimate control of everything that happens. Bringing charges, dismissing charges, approving the findings, approving the sentence, approving the results of the court-martial, and making all the decisions uh, throughout the trial. So there's, there's one general who is ultimately signing off on all of these decisions? On, on every general court-martial case, right. And who is the convening authority for Haditha? Uh, the convening authority for Haditha, the original convening authority for Haditha was uh, Lieutenant General James Mattis. Yeah, James Mattis. That James Mattis. Mattis was the commander of the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, and therefore the convening authority for the Haditha investigation. It was James Mattis's decision to charge Frank with 18 counts of murder. It was James Mattis's decision to grant Umberto Mendoza immunity before those charges against Frank were preferred. It was James Mattis's decision to charge Sonic Delacruz with four counts of murder at roadside, and then, just a few months later, dismiss those exact same charges with prejudice, even though no new evidence had emerged. And it was Mattis who was the convening authority when the prosecution went to Haditha and deposed Safa. Now, Mattis was no longer the convening authority when Frank went to trial. He had long since been promoted. But the decisions James Mattis made at the start of this case determined whether or not Haditha could successfully be prosecuted. I never got to question Mattis, but a few years ago, I gave everything I'd uncovered to Dexter Filkins, a reporter at The New Yorker. At the time, Dexter was writing a profile on Mattis, who was then Donald Trump's Secretary of Defense. He asked Mattis why Mendoza had been granted immunity and why Delacruz had his charges dismissed. Here's what Mattis said. Quote, you can't criminalize every mistake. You have to have a degree of humanity 
when you're given the authority to lock your own troops up in jail for the rest of their lives because they have the guts to volunteer to go into that situation. End quote. I remember reading that line, you can't criminalize every mistake, and thinking, mistake? Mistake? Did James Mattis read the same blood spatter analysis report I did? Did he read Mike Maloney's conclusion that a Marine stood at the foot of the bed, sighted targets, and methodically shot the children in house two? Did he look at the pictures taken by Andrew Wright? Mistake? Honestly, I didn't know what to say. I still don't. This is Michael, and I don't know about you, but sometimes life gets so busy I don't have the time to cook, but I still want delicious, healthy, gourmet meals. Enter Factor. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals are always fresh and never frozen. Each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. I eat the flexitarian and protein-rich meals, and with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. Last night, I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon, and it was quick and amazing. And if you want more than meals, there are over 60 add-ons, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and smoothies to help you stay fueled and feel good all day. And if you're like me, and you're always looking for gourmet options, you can try meals that feature premium ingredients, like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. You can always pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. So what are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash murderhouse50 and use code murderhouse50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's murderhouse50 at factormeals.com slash murderhouse50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Frank left the Marine Corps, grew his hair, got remarried, got a good job, and raised his daughters. 
I don't talk to Frank that much, but when I do, he seems content with his fate. It still bothers him that the world thinks of him as the butcher of Haditha, but he also knows he bears responsibility for what happened that day. After I finished my film, I sent it to him. This is what he wrote back to me. Mike, after watching the film, I was convinced the prosecution had a one-track mind as far as who and what was to blame, while mostly ignoring the forensic evidence. With that said, I was completely guilty of dereliction of duty because I allowed my squad members to make decisions that I should not have let them make as their squad leader that day. I don't disagree with how things ended for me. Thanks, Frank. I think that's why I keep trying to find ways to tell this story. Frank Wooderich is the only person who has publicly taken responsibility for what happened in Haditha. Think about that for a moment. Not Frank's platoon leader who ordered him to clear south, or his company commander, or his battalion commander, or the Marine Corps, or you, or me. Because that's really the whole point of this story. We sent Frank Wooderich to Haditha. We sent all those Marines and soldiers off to war. And when it all went to hell, we washed our hands of it and blamed everyone but ourselves. Mom? Yes? Can you please help me? I'm sure Daddy can. I gotta make a salad. Can you help me, Daddy? After Frank's trial ended, Neil sent me all the videotape I had shot, every single one and I set out to try and tell this story. But I couldn't find anyone who wanted to hear it. Everyone was exhausted by the war, by what we had done in it and what it had done to us. We both step out of the room. I don't remember who was first. That's okay. Just go ahead and step out as you best remember it. What are you hearing right now? Um, at this point, um, I think once I left that room, I started hearing gunfire coming from the bedroom at the end. I remember seeing Mendoza in there, but I didn't, I didn't see if there see was- See him go in? No, I see him come out. In there firing. Holy shit. But I couldn't bring myself to just give up. For whatever reason, I couldn't let this story go. I was unwilling to accept the idea that the truth could be so cavalierly discarded, that no one, gave a damn. You see, I've come to realize that cover-ups don't succeed because some brilliant plan was masterfully executed. Eventually, someone makes a mistake, or talks, or leaks a document, and the truth comes out. Because keeping secrets, at any level, is really hard. And at this level, it's almost impossible. Cover-ups work when we are indifferent to the crime, when we stop caring, or when we never cared in the first place. That's what makes for a successful cover-up. Indifference. And I just couldn't bring myself to be indifferent to this crime. I couldn't do it. I tried. And I'll be the first to admit that there is nothing rational about obsessing over a story for 15 years. Most people in my life thought I was crazy. 
Actually, everyone did. But I sincerely believed that once you heard all the evidence, it would matter. That you wouldn't be indifferent to this crime. And that's why I made this podcast. Why I fought for the truth to come out. We all set? This whole thing in my mind, it was all a political joke. It was one congressman that read the report and decided to make a big stink about it. But that's how I believe it spawned. It was all political bullshit. Lost in all the evidence that never made it to trial were the photographs of the 9mm shell casings in Houses 1 and 2. It bothered Neil to no end that the government ignored this evidence, that they made no attempt to account for their presence. I think that's why Neil was so focused on calling Justin Sherritt to the stand, even if the government wouldn't. Neil was hell-bent on confronting Sherritt with his own statements and with the evidence hidden in those photographs. So do you get the sense that people have no clue what you went through? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, what? Oh, they have absolutely no clue. They see, you know, war movies, and that's all they... That's it. But Frank's plea deal stopped the trial short and kept Neil from calling Sherritt to the stand. So even though I was no longer officially a member of Frank Witterich's defense team, I made questioning Sherritt my job. I can tell you Frank Witterich, he was he's one of the rare Marines that you find. Usually, by the time they get to, you know, that rank and that position, it's their way or the highway. And if he'd planned something, he would honestly look at everyone and go, you know, does anybody else have any comments, any different ideas? And he would sit down and listen. Most of the time, you'd get guys that it's, you know, their way or the highway. This is what we're doing. Done. And Frank was always very reasonable squad leader. You know, he listened to anyone that had anything to say. And, I mean, that was a very great thing to have for our squad. Did you think to yourself, he's green? I mean, here's a then-sergeant who's never seen any action. No, just there was something about him, the, the aura of him. You know, he just, he came in and took over and everything just came together. I mean, I honestly can't describe it. I mean, you, you don't find people like him very often in this world, and... I'm glad we found him as a squad leader. You know, as soon as that first shot happened, as soon as that IED happened, you know, it was flicking on a switch. Hypersensitive to everything, your adrenaline's pumping, and you're just ready to rock and roll. Explain to me, in your own words, sequence of events as you remember them. Do you get to House One with them when they arrive? I got there after they were already in it. Uh, I heard M16 fire, you know, gunshots. Uh, frag grenades. By the time I got to the top of the hill, got in there. We're talking about House One. Yes, House One. Uh, got in there, you know, linked up with Tatum, if I remember right. Uh, basically, he, as fast as you could, said, all rooms are clear but this one. Put the 240 down, had a 9mm with me. Believe it was Tatum that he threw the frag grenade in, and as soon as the frag grenade went off, we went in and cleared and basically just shot anything that moved. So this is house one? Yes. Okay. Do you know if you shot anybody in that house? Not 100%. I mean, I'm pretty sure I did, but, you know, it was pretty smoky, and I just mag-dumped when I got in there. 
Uh, and what does that mean? Uh, just emptied the mag, emptied the, the weapon until it was out of ammo. Were you shooting at objects? Were you shooting blindly? Uh, blindly, but anything that had the silhouette of a person. So let me ask you some harder questions if I can. Okay. Um, there are civilians in that house. Well, I mean, unfortunately, we didn't know there were civilians or children in that house. Was it not your job to know? How would we know? So somebody yells runner and the fire team runs off to house two. Is that how it happened? Yes. Okay, so explain to me then what happens next. Uh, for house two, you know, we run across the courtyard or, you know, the equivalent of a yard. Run across, get to the, to the other house, if I remember right. There was a, the first door we went to, Salinas tried kicking it in and it wouldn't budge. Uh, then we hear gunshots. We turn, you know, I turn around and it's Mendoza shooting through a door in house two. We kick the door down. You know, there's a dead body laying there. At that point, I was out of nine millimeter ammo, so I was pretty useless with a 240 golf in a close quarter combat environment. So I opted to stay outside and take rear security just in case either someone jumped out and ran away or just in case they were hiding somewhere else and tried to attack us while we were in the house. So I took security outside and, you know, covered everybody else. You know, that's when I heard, you know, M16, you know, shooting. You know, I didn't honestly know what happened in house two. Why not? I never went in it. Okay, but Mendoza does go in the house? Yes. Uh, Tatum does go in the house? Yes. Frank? Yes. Okay. So what happened in that house to the best of your memory or the best of your recollection? Did you guys talk about it? No, we really didn't talk about it. I mean, and for me, I, since I was outside, Marines went in, Marines came out. That's all that mattered to me. The same amount of guys that went in, the same amount of guys that came out. Okay. Did you look at the pictures in House 2? Yes. In House 1? Yeah, I believe so. Okay. A long time ago. A long time ago. Can I give you one to take a quick look at? Sure. Okay. This is a picture of the bed. This was one of the prosecution exhibits. And the window is here. It's hard to see, but can you make that up down there right at the edge of the curtain? Maybe a shell casing. Yeah, that's a shell casing there. Do you see that? Yeah, that's a pistol shell casing, though. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to also show you one from House One. That's where the fragmentary grenade mm -hmm. went off. You see that? Yeah, casings. Casings, right. Would it surprise you to hear that NCIS, early in the process, identified those as, as 9 mil shell casings in both 1 and 2? What they look like to me. So how, how does a 9 millimeter shell casing get into the back bedroom of, of House 2, where the children were? Dropped? Planted? I don't know. I was out of ammo by the time we went to 9 mil by the time we got to House 2, so... Either somebody picked it up, maybe it was stuck to someone's boot that stepped on it. But you never fired in that back bedroom of house two? I never even entered that house. I was, like I said, I was out of nine millimeter ammo after house one. Okay, so you didn't go back to house one after house two? I don't think so. Do you remember saying to NCIS that you went back to house one after you had cleared house two? 
Maybe. I, I don't know. You know, when I went to Iraq with Frank and when I was in the bedroom with Frank and we were in house too, um, he remembered you being in that bedroom after the house had been cleared. Which house? Two. Oh. And he remembered you and Tatum going back on the way back to Chestnut into house one. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I don't remember that, but... Okay. Because Woodridge and I both went to the Humvees together. Yeah, he, he remembers you arriving, and as does Callop, a little bit after him, right? That you, you got back to the Humvees. You were ordered by Callop to clear the house with the graffiti. Mm-hmm. But that Frank showed up just a bit ahead of you because you and you and Tatum had gone back into one. I feel like everybody has their immunity, and nobody is in any danger of further prosecution. But I don't feel like I've ever gotten the truth about House Two. I don't feel like I ever got the truth in many ways about House One. In the corner of House One. There's a mother and a son who are hunched over like this. And the forensics say that somebody, somebody, they don't know who, stood over them and effectively executed them. The father in, in house one, you'll see all this debris here on the floor, you know, from the fragmentary grenade. Mm -hmm. His legs are clean, which told the forensic expert that he wasn't in the position where he was killed when the grenade went off. Somebody came back after all of the debris settled and he was shot sometime later in that room. Otherwise, he too would have been covered with the debris. Can you help me understand what happened in Haditha? I don't know. I guess from the beginning of this interview, you said you wanted a... You wanted the uh, American population to know what war is like and what happens in war, and well, this is a clear definition of what happens in war. There's good kills and there's bad kills, and when you start classifying the good ones from the bad ones, you turn this war into another Vietnam and there isn't gonna be a winner. You're just sending people over there and they're going over there and they're dying, they're coming home in body bags, and American population couldn't give a flying fuck. You have a lot of anger? No, I'm not really an angry person. A lot of frustration? No. What are your final thoughts then? On? on just in general, on the whole thing. I mean, do you look at the pictures in house two in the bedroom and think, there's something wrong? As a Marine, do you think that that engagement should have happened in the house that way? That those were good kills? No, I'm not going to say they're good kills, and I'm not going to say they were bad kills. They were just kills. This has been a Crowd Network podcast in association with Buccaneer Media and the Dakota Group. This podcast was produced by Steve Jones and edited by Ed Enniot, with additional editing from Ed Barteski Jr. and R.A. Fetty. 
Executive producers for Crowd Network are Mike Carr and Mike Pearls. And for Buccaneer Media, Tony Wood and Richard Talkhart. Original music by Joel Goodman, with some additional tracks from BMG Production Music. If you want more Murder In-House 2, join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we'll be posting videos of what you've just heard, as well as photos and copies of original investigative documents. I'm Michael Epstein. Thanks for listening. Really, thank you. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. Through terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events, on our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S.